0: Good morning. This is the time in our worship where we, uh, we stop and reflect and look at the Bible together and ask God to speak to us. Uh, we happen to, uh, well, before anything else, let's pray. Father God, would you teach us this morning as we open your word and as we uh, quiet our hearts and our minds and we ask you to be our teacher. Uh, may what we say here and now, Lord, be used in us to bring change and bring encouragement uh, where that is needed. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're actually studying the greatest talk uh, that was ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we said a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus didn't just get lucky at a TED Talk or something of that nature. This is actually a, a talk that has impacted, even changed lives not just for years, but literally for centuries. It is, in fact, the greatest talk ever given. We learned last week about how many of us suffer from something we could call approval addiction. Uh, be sure to go online if you weren't here with us last week and take a look at that. Uh, a lot of us are tempted to think that who we are is who other people think we are. That's approval addiction. And uh, we kind of idolize getting other people to approve of us or be impressed with us in some way. Jesus gives us some very practical tools for how to combat that kind of thing in our lives. And this is something that all of us wrestle with in varying degrees, at various times. And uh, Jesus invites us to step out of that kind of slavery because that's actually, in fact, what living for the approval of others is. It's a, it's a kind of slavery. If you're constantly living and thinking and worrying about how others think about you or feel about you. And Jesus invites us into a different kind of life, a kingdom kind of life. That's a life that's rooted and grounded in the love of our heavenly father. And he gives us a little known spiritual practice, or maybe I should say a little practiced spiritual practice. And that would be the practice of secrecy, doing the things that we do secretly Secrecy is when we abstain from making our good deeds or our impressive qualities known to others. Uh, In secrecy, I hand over the PR department of my life to God. And I say, your will be done, your kingdom come in me. And I learn that I can refrain from trying to make people go, wow, look at him. You know, a lot of what we do, a lot of what I do uh, is sometimes associated with that, wow, you know, look at me, look at what I've done. This week we're going to look at Jesus, uh, how he applies this practice of secrecy to the specific area of giving. How many you are glad you're here this morning? That's what we're going to talk about because that's the next section that we come to in the Sermon on the Mount, this thing of giving. And this is what Jesus actually says. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I happen to believe that... uh, Jesus was actually a funny guy. Uh, I think the reason it's not more obvious to us uh, that Jesus had a great sense of humor is because humor is something that is very culture bound. I mean, for example, how many movies that were made 50 years ago that were funny then are still funny today? You know, you get my point. Well, the Bible's 2,000 plus years old and running. Uh, How many 2,000-year-old documents are still really funny when we read them? Not many, probably not any. Uh, Here Jesus is actually giving a picture of what religious hypocrisy looks like. That's what he's painting here. That's the picture. And he's doing it in kind of a funny way. He says, now imagine if somebody goes to synagogue or goes to temple, or he could say goes to church. It's offering time, and they pull out a trumpet during the offering time, and da 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 da, you know they're announcing, they're blowing reveille, just before they put their money in the bag. They're trying to get attention drawn to themselves and the generosity that they're showing. I suspect that would have been laugh out loud funny to the folks that Jesus was talking to, and obviously Jesus was not talking to any Presbyterians that uh, <laughs> on that particular occasion. Nobody even back then actually blew a trumpet when it came to announcing their giving. He's speaking of course in hyperbole, but he is making an important point. Have you ever had a time where you might've done something that was really generous, really wonderful for someone else or for others, And then you caught yourself trying to figure out how you could slip that into a conversation, let somebody else know what it is you did, but all the while making sure you don't look like you're trying to impress them by telling them about this thing that you did. You wanna make that look like that's the farthest thing from your mind. Anybody else ever done that? (laughs) Yeah, we've all done that. We've all done that. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So if you do something in order to impress somebody, that is your reward, impressing them, assuming you do, impressing them, you'll get a wow, wow, Dwayne, way to go. And when that happens to us, often what results is we become just a little more addicted to the whole problem of impressing people. And it will get harder and harder to avoid doing the same thing the next time. You'll be even more drawn to this thing of approval addiction. Now, Jesus goes on to say, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that would have been another really funny line to an ancient non-Presbyterian crowd. Uh, And there's another profound idea behind this. Let me see if I can explain it. When something becomes deeply habitual in me, Uh, It's so embodied in just what I do. I do it really without thinking. We have a phrase around that. We'll say that's become like second nature to you. You do it without thinking. Give you an example. Uh, Think about learning to tie your shoes when you were younger. Initially, you had to concentrate really hard. Uh, The first time you did it, you were super proud. It was like, look at me. I just tied my shoes. This is fantastic. Blow a trumpet. Now, I'm going to assume that for most of us here this morning, uh, we've gone beyond that. We we tie our shoes really almost literally without even thinking about it. We certainly don't blow a trumpet for something like that. We're free to think about things that are more important and more interesting. Uh, It's a funny thing. If you were to ask me, how do I tie my shoes? I would really have to sit down to describe it. And that's exactly what I did. Let's see, I cross the ends, I put the right end under the left, I make a loop with the right circle, I circle that with the left, pull it through and tighten it. Now here's the challenge to you. Don't do this during the sermon, please, but go home and uh, try to tie your shoes with your non-dominant hand, whatever that is, your left or right hand. In other words, reverse the order of the way you normally tie them. You will discover it's a very hard thing to do because you have to think about it. My left hand literally does not know what my right hand is doing when it comes to tying my shoes, literally. And I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. It's a profound observation about the human condition in the kingdom of God. What he's saying is let your generosity become something that is so habitual in you Something you do so regularly, so often, uh, something, you know, kind of like something like tying your shoes, but let it become such a habit that your left hand does not know what your right hand is even doing. And initially, of course, when you begin doing something like giving, it'll feel very heroic to you. It'll be new to you. You will want to blow a trumpet. Hey, look at me. Look what I just gave. Look how sacrificial I am being. Can I get a wow? Not in a Presbyterian church, but uh, we, uh, we tend to think that way. It's normal. Initially, the first time you serve and you are generous with your time, uh, yet you feel again like a hero of sorts. Hey, look, Holly, I just did the dishes, dried them and put them away. Hey, look, I just emptied the uh, dishwasher and you didn't have to tell me to do it. Can I get a wow, honey? You know, however, there's no talking from the rogues gallery, you know. However, eventually, after you've practiced being generous, you'll be generous without having to think about how wonderful you are because you're being generous. You'll be free to think about more important things. You will not need the trumpet, so to speak, anymore. Dallas Willard, a writer that I've enjoyed over the years, used to say this. He said, surefire signs of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to us. That's a good observation. As we grow in living generously, we stop thinking a trumpet needs to sound every time we act like Jesus. We stop thinking that a trumpet needs to sound every time we move into a situation and serve someone sacrificially. Now, Jesus says, when you do this, when you do give sacrificially, when you do so in secret, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And uh, the idea here, we want to be clear on this. The idea is not you give in secret, you're going to get a really big mansion in heaven. The whole subject of rewards in the Bible is a lot more sophisticated than that. But if somebody, you know, uh, some people have understood Jesus' comments to indicate here, hey, if you can pull off what you do in secret, you'll get a reward from God. But if somebody, if somebody finds out what you did, if you let someone know what you did too bad, now God is going to downsize the mansion. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. The idea really is this. It's that as we give, as we live generously, as we become a truly generous person, someone who is not merely trying to impress people, but actually wants to partner with God, wants to follow Jesus, wants to be like him, you're going to enter into the reality of living in the kingdom of Jesus. And living in the kingdom is in fact really good. It's really righteous, that word that keeps coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. It's really rewarding. It's really purposeful. It's really satisfying. And all of that will result in you becoming a different person, a joy filled, faith filled, purpose filled, love filled child of God. And the Bible talks often about the rewards of living generously. And what it has to say, <coughs> excuse me, is in fact, it's it's staggering and i want to spend the rest of our time this morning getting crystal clear on the rewards of living generously or living with generosity. So here we go, the rewards of generosity. Are you with me? Number 1. The first reward of generosity is just blessing. <coughs> living a blessed life. Jesus said to himself it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that sounds like a Hallmark card when we, when we say that, but that's partially because of what we've done with the word blessed. We've, we've made something just kind of, that's just a religious cliche, if you will. But as we have seen and are seeing over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, that word blessed really is just a synonym, another word for the good life. The really good, really satisfying, really joy-filled, really purposeful life. That's the blessed life. The idea in our culture is, at least we think this way, we think that getting stuff is the path to the good life. Getting more things, adding more comfort, gaining more power, whatever it is, getting things is the path to the good life. And uh, it is true that when we get things, there is some pleasure that comes with that oftentimes, most of the time. Uh, There's even a little chemical surge that happens when we buy something new that we've been wanting. And so it feels good to get new stuff. But that little burst of pleasure wears off. Have you noticed that? It just wears off. And over the long haul, get this, givers are actually happier, more joyful people than takers. Over the long haul, there's a book been written some years ago by a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist at Notre Dame. It's a fascinating book. Um, It's called The Paradox of Generosity. And uh, he did some extensive research on the impact of generosity on the lives of people. Uh, In his study, he dealt with over 2,000 folks. It was a nationally representative survey that he did. And uh, they used the best tools of social science to look at the question, what does generosity do for people? That's what they wanted to find out. They wanted to answer that question very clearly. They wanted to know, is the conventional wisdom right? And the conventional wisdom is that if you give it away, you lose it. You don't have it anymore. Just that simple, right? Is that the correct wisdom? Or they wanted to know, you know, is it actually more blessed to give than to receive? Do you get something back when you give something Away, and I'll just give you the summary that he writes uh, in his book. Again, fascinating book, highly recommended if you're interested in this subject. But this is Christian Smith's summary conclusion. He says Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in return. By spending ourselves for others' well being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact, he says. The generosity paradox can also be stated in the negative. By grasping onto what we currently have, we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. In holding on to what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we are affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. Amazing findings, amazing. Throughout the book, uh, and again, all based on empirical research, uh, this is not taken from a religious text somewhere or from the Bible or uh, some religious tradition. Throughout the book, they talk about two ways to go about navigating life. One is with a generous heart. These are people who regularly and freely give a significant portion of their valued resources, time and money, the two most valuable. They give that away to causes and to people who have needs, and they give to organizations that help address those needs versus the person who they describe as the ungenerous heart, people who do not regularly and freely give away their valued resources, their time and their money to others these two contrasting ways of doing life. And it turns out that in every dimension that they studied, every single dimension, a person's happiness, their physical health, having a purpose, feeling like your life has a purpose, a reason for living, avoiding depression, personal growth, every dimension that they studied, generous people are enriched in all of these areas while ungenerous people are diminished in all of these areas. And you just got to say, and you, you would if you weren't at a Presbyterian church, you'd go, wow, amen, woo. Who'd have guessed Jesus could be right about something? Yeah. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It just is. In this church, we have people who do something crazy. It's called tithing. They give at least 10% of their earned income away every year. And then on top of that, many of them, they give to missions and they give to things like the gift that we do at the end of every year. and They give to other organizations too that do things that they believe in. Would you like to see some pictures of these people? Well, you know, you can't because then that would be them giving not in secret and uh, they would lose their reward, their bigger mansion, no, I'm kidding, you know, from the father. They would, they would lose the joy of secretly giving because that's what they do, they give secretly. You know, we have uh, Feed My Starving Children coming up this next Saturday. Uh, we all together, many of us gave $71,000 for the gift here back in December and that was really a cool thing. You surprised us. We did not expect that you would give so generously and, and those monies are going to feed my starving children and a church plant that's launching in the fall. I mean, super cool, super cool. And I, I just want to tell you this, and I know many of you would agree with me, many of you would say exactly the same thing, might even say it uh, with greater depth and experience than I, than I can say it with, but I, I would say this, I get more blessing, more meaning, more purpose and more joy out of the monies I give to kingdom things than out of any monies I spend on myself, buying myself my little things that I want. Now that's the honest to God's truth. And understand that's the first reward of this thing of generosity. If you live generously, if you live like God, you will experience this thing of the good life or blessing. Doesn't mean other problems go away or pale, uh, or you don't wrestle with stuff that other people wrestle with, but it means, it does mean you will experience blessing that comes from just being a person who, has, in this case, has the character of God, namely generosity. Second reward, we've got eight of these, so as you can see, we're going to be here a while. So, <laughs> now some of these are pretty short. Second, second reward is more relational connection. We live in a society that increasingly is financially rich but relationally poor. It's just true about us. Uh, look at what Paul says to givers, people that gave in the early church about the people who received their generosity. This is what Paul writes. He says, so two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met because that's where the gift went to believers in Jerusalem. Those needs will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Jesus Christ or or the good news of Christ. The point is Paul saying the gospel will be so evident in your life because you sacrificially did someone, something for someone else. That's what he's saying. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. You see, people who are generous with their time and with their money, they end up entering into new relationships. You create new relationships when you serve others, you connect with them, you care about them. That's what happens here at Deer Creek. That's why (coughs) we have a great, great relationship with people in Guatemala. We want that relationship to even get better. Why? Well, because we send teams down who put in water systems with them. We give money to support some of the chase, some of the leaders there in that ministry. And we're excited to do that. We are blessed by doing that. And we have a great relationship with these folks. Uh, we have a church planter in Myanmar. He's also starting, for lack of a better way of describing it, he's he's starting a school uh, for children, mostly Buddhist children. And he and his wife, um, they just pour themselves out into the lives of these children. While at the same time, uh, Rova raises up church planters and is planting churches. Uh, among Buddhist peoples there. We have a great relationship with them. We support them financially. We believe in what they do. We see that our partnership with them is something that honors God and blesses God. Same same thing uh, with regards to some people in Ukraine. Same thing with Feed My Starving Children. It's all motivated out of the same thing. And relationship is created by these things that we do by living generously. Um here's a if you're stingy with your time and your money I think you'll find that other people will be stingy with their hearts toward you if you live a stingy life you won't be creating the connections that you could create if you are generous with your money and your time people's hearts will go out to you that's just one of the rewards of generosity number three the third reward is freedom it's freedom When I focus on my little life and getting what I want, I become a slave essentially to my little desires. You remember the movies or the books, uh, Lord of the Rings? Some some of you are fanatics about that, yeah. (laughs) Others could care less. But uh, there was a character in those books written by Tolkien called Gollum. The word Gollum actually comes from a Hebrew word that's used just one time in the Old Testament. It's uh, Psalm 139, verse 16. David says, your eyes saw my unformed, there's the word, unformed body. That little word golem in the Hebrew actually became in the, in the time frame of the Middle Ages kind of a, a character in Jewish folklore. That unformed frame, unformed body uh, took on a a persona of its own. It came to mean or signify somebody uh, in Jewish thought who lived a grudging, resentful, soulless, miserly, empty kind of life, a life without form. And that's part of why Tolkien chose that name for that character, Gollum, for the character that comes into possession of this thing, the ring. The ring in Tolkien is like a psychic amplifier, right? It takes a desire that a person has, like a desire for power or a desire for control or a desire for revenge, and it turns it into an obsession until it becomes an all-consuming idol in that person's life. And by that time, the person is actually enslaved to that desire. And the ring becomes the master of the one who wears it. If you've ever watched those movies or read that book, those books. And that's why Bilbo and Gollum and Frodo, all three, have such a hard time letting go of the ring. It gives them something they want. But in wanting it, they become enslaved to it. Uh, But and that's kind of the, the rule of the dark kingdoms in the Lord of the Rings. There's a rule also for Jesus' kingdom, Um, and it's a quite different rule. Jesus, when he first sent out the 12, the 12 apostles, and he sent them out to go announce that the kingdom of God is coming, he told them this. He said, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. And he says to them, while you're out there, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give, he tells them. That's the rule of Jesus' kingdom. What in the world do I have that God did not give me? My body, my mind, the food that I eat, my clothes, my friends, my family, all of it, every bit of it, a gift from God, freely given, not earned. And so when I live generously, I'm actually being like God. You see that connection? And that liberates me from slavery to things and it enables me to give with the same freedom that I receive because I receive freely all the time. All the time, gifts from God. And Now I can give with that same kind of freedom, freedom as a result of living generously. Fourth reward of generosity is joy. We're told this from the great story about giving in the Old Testament. This is from 1 Chronicles 29. It says, The people rejoiced at the willing responses of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. There there is just great joy that comes to someone who gives wholeheartedly and freely. That's what we see there in 1 Chronicles 29. Gifts were being given for the building of the temple. Uh, I'll tell you how deeply God has wired, <coughs> excuse me, wired generosity into you and me. This is fascinating to me. When you are generous with your money, it's not, is it fascinating to any of you? Uh, probably, yeah. Okay. When, when you are uh, generous with your money or with your time and serving others, we know now. Research tells us that it triggers the release of oxytocin. Uh, how do you say it? oxytocin? Oxytocin, uh, dopamine serotonin, vasopressin, endorphins, and prolactin. It's like a chemical cocktail. These things get released in us when we serve, when we give. Then this creates what is sometimes referred to as the helper's high. People have talked about this. It's a joyous, euphoric feeling that people get when they know that they are doing something that matters, doing something that's right, doing something that has impact, doing something that's good, doing something that's generous. It's the helper's high. You know what stingy people secrete? Not making this up. Cortisol. You know what that causes? Stress. Yeah, stress hormone. And what all this means is, and this is just, I find this comically wonderful. God has wired our bodies So literally we cannot give without getting. This chemical cocktail is released in us that does good things, important things in us. It's this, it's this thing of joy. What do you get when you live generously? Joy. The fifth thing, God's delight. When we live like him, we experience the delight of God. Uh, in Proverbs 19, the writer of Proverbs says, "He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord." That's an incredible statement. And He will reward him. God will reward him for what he has done. You know, according to Forbes magazine, you know who the richest man in the world is? Jeff Bezos, you've heard that name? 160 billion. Apparently, he makes about 275 million dollars a day. A day. That's pretty good. Here's a really important piece of information that we all need to know. You ready? We are all gonna die. Does that bless you? We are all going to die, guaranteed, guaranteed. And when you die, your money, your stuff, your junk, your possessions, they will not be making the trip with you. Not any of them. So tell me, Why would you not give some of what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot, cannot lose? Can you imagine standing before God one day and having to give an account or earning $275 million a day? Holy cow. But it's all pretty relative, isn't it? Um, (coughs) Some parts of the world would have a hard time appreciating what we earn in a day. If you're in Mexico, the average income, annual income is $8,500 a year. $8,500. But if you're in a place like Malawi, the average annual income is $250 a year. If you're in a place called Madagascar, the average annual income is $260 a year. If you're in Burundi, the average annual income is $270 a year. These are places, in fact, too, where some of our meals are going to go to feed starving children. You can readily understand why. People in these places, I would say, would have a hard time imagining what they would do with what you and I would make in a day. They probably couldn't even imagine what they would do with the wealth that we have. The Bible says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them. When we live with generosity, we we, we just simply delight God. We delight him so much, he's going to reward us. He's going to get involved in our lives, do things in us that produce fruitfulness and health and good things. He's going to reward us. Here's the sixth reward. There really are eight. I, I meant that earlier when I said I got eight of these. You thought I was kidding. Here's the sixth one. You will be a blessing to the next generation. Uh, Psalm 37 says this, and it's talking about the righteous person. It says, they are always generous and lend freely. Again, going back to that word that we've run across in the Sermon on the Mount a number of times. You know, your righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He said, well, this righteous person that's being described here is somebody who is always generous, always lending freely, always trying to be helpful. And their children will be a blessing. It's fascinating to me. The text doesn't say their children will be blessed. It says their children will be a blessing. What I take from that is that if you ever want to, you know, have the impact on your children of having them too be generous people, it's very important that you be parent a generous person. Very, very important. Um, if you ever want to see what what a grasping spirit does to the next generation, just read a little Shakespeare play called King Lear. Oh my gosh, what a disaster! Perfect illustration of the fact that selfish parents tend to raise up selfish, greedy, grasping, self-centered children and generous parents tend to raise up generous children. Here's the thing, friends. Our heavenly father is unbelievably generous. He wants us to be like him. It's just that simple. And as we become generous, we are able to build into the generosity of the next generation, the generation that comes behind us. That's number six. Here's number seven. Multiplied impact. When we live generously, the, the impact of our lives is multiplied many times over. We're told in Mark chapter 12 it says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. He's at the temple, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to them, it's so interesting, Jesus calls the disciples over to him at this point. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this story has always fascinated me on many different levels. <clears throat> For one thing, Jesus goes and he apparently he stands near the coffer there where the people are putting their money in and uh, seems kind of nosy to me. I don't know. I might say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, whose business is it of yours? What Their giving. What about this secret giving thing that you talked about? I mean, why exactly are you doing this, Jesus? Jesus seems to have this strange idea that people's giving is his business. That what people do with the resources that have come to them from God is his business. He makes no apology about this. And I just kind of take from that, you know, I swallow hard and go, oh, okay, maybe I need to reorient my thinking. Maybe he has every right to care about this. But here's a point. The the widow was not giving to impress anybody. She wasn't trying to uh, impress anyone. The widow was not hiring a trumpet player is the point. The widow was betting literally everything on God. She didn't give very much, but she gave literally everything she had. And when Jesus said this poor widow put in more than all the others, in a way he wasn't being poetic. He was not exaggerating. You see, the spiritual dimension of, the, of, of following God in this poor widow was that she was going to trust God completely. Her intentions, her choices, her character, her trust in God, all of that was unseen to everybody but Jesus. But it's very real. You remember the question we asked last week? We said there are four great questions of life. The first great question of life is what is reality? It's a metaphysical question. What really is real, you know? Uh, do we live in just a material world? Uh, is there a spiritual dimension to any of this? What, what is reality? Jesus says, uh, in answering that question, he says, God and his kingdom, the unseen realm of the kingdom of God, that is the most real thing there is. And that widow's might, you see, became the most famous gift ever given in human history because Jesus tells her story. That widow literally inspired the generosity of hundreds of millions of people all through the centuries that have read that story. She had no idea she was going to be doing that when she gave her two mites or two cents, so to speak. But it turns out she literally did give more than anybody. Her giving inspired other giving. Her giving had multiplied impact because God gave it that multiplied impact. You see, no matter what your income is, don't believe your gift doesn't matter or doesn't count or that it will have little impact. When you give, God sees that spiritual dimension of your faith, your trust, what you're doing. And God can take two fish and five loaves and he can feed a multitude with it. God is the ultimate multiplier of what we give. So we never really know the full impact of our giving. (coughs) I said once upon a time, I don't know, long time ago, that I may one day find out that literally the most important spiritual thing Holly and I have ever done is just give consistently because God can take what is given and multiply it and cause great, wonderful kingdom things to happen. I'll be interested to find out one day kind of what happened as a result of our giving. Anyway, last reward. Are you glad this is the last one? Can I get a wow? Wow. Yeah, that's all Presbyterians are good for right there. We're almost done. Wow, yay, amen, okay. Last reward of generosity. When you live generously, God becomes, and I really do believe this, God gets involved in your finances. He becomes a financial partner. Think about this. When you step into generosity, you align yourself with the unseen power and purpose of God's kingdom. You're impacting other people. Jesus put it like this. He said, given it it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is talking about the reality of God's involvement in your or in my financial life. Now I need to reiterate something that I say pretty regularly. And that is giving is not something you do so that you can get more money. If that's why you're doing it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Giving is not something we do to get external rewards, things like wealth or better relationships or applause or things like that. That's not the why for why we, why we give or live generously. But I will tell you this, and I could base this on Scripture. If you want me to go get Scripture, I can go get a lot more for you. We can spend a lot more time here. But based on Scripture, based on the lives, the testimony of millions of people, and based on what Holly and I have discovered personally, personally experienced uh, throughout the years of our lives, and that is this, you really cannot outgive God. Now, that can mean a lot of dumb things. But I would just say I wouldn't take back a dollar of what we've given over the decades of our opportunity to give. I don't want a dollar of that back because what has accrued to us in our lives in terms of blessing, in terms of joy, in terms of growth, and so on, all in terms of relationships that have been formed, all of those things are so much greater than any dollar amount that we've given. You cannot outgive God. I believe that's true of your time, that's true of your money. When we have volunteered to do things that we thought we didn't have time to do, but we believed it was the right thing to do, something God wanted us to do, amazing how God reorients the schedule. Something falls off that allows you to have the time you needed to do what you thought you couldn't do. It's just amazing to me. I really don't believe you can outgive God, not with your time or with your money. He multiplies and he blesses our use of time our use of money in ways that build our faith, that impact others, that impact you. You know, the beginning level of giving for the nation of Israel, you know, I mentioned earlier on, it was called a tithe. It was where people would give God the first 10% of their income. Uh, It's also another word for this is first fruits in the Old Testament. It's been my observation that people have a really, really, really hard time trusting God with finances and with money. In fact, statistics say, and I think we're probably right in the same same uh, place as many other churches. Uh, fewer than 20% of Christians, people who go to a church, actually tithe. And uh, I, I think that's probably true for us as well. Here's what God says about this tithe thing. He says, "Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this," He says and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there's that word again, blessing, that there will not be room enough to store it. When my kids were in school many years back, I had to stop teaching them math when they were at about the sixth grade level. There was something called new math. I only got old math. I barely got old math. And so I, I I was not the go to parent you know for that kind of stuff. Uh, in the kingdom of God, there's kind of a new math. Um, it's a reality of another kind. The old math in our world says if I've got hundred bucks and I give ten percent of a ten bucks away, now I've only got ninety bucks. I've got less than I had before. That's old math. The more I give, the less I have. Old math. Old thinking wrong thinking. In the kingdom of God, the foundation of reality is different. When you are generous, God enters into the equation. The fact of the matter is 90% with God is more than 100% without him. That's the new math, kingdom math. This is the only area that I know of. I can't think of another area where God actually says to us, test me in this. And I think it's because he knows how skittish we are about the financial piece and about giving away our money. God actually says, test me in this. Now, for us here at Deer Creek, practically speaking, how do we get started with this? If you've never done this before, something called a tithe, we offer something called the challenge, a tithe challenge. Um, you make a commitment for 90 days. And during that 90 days, uh, you tithe from your income. And if God has not gotten involved in your finances in that 90 days in ways that bless you, if it's clear to you that this is not financially sustainable for you, um, you cannot keep doing it and pay your bills and so on and so forth, we will return that money to you. Absolutely no questions asked. That's the challenge. But if it is clear that God is involved in your financial life, if he is blessing you, if you are growing spiritually, if your 90% is meeting your financial obligations, well then keep tithing. Keep trusting, keep growing, and we will celebrate with you, and we will send you a beautiful set of Ginsu steak knives. (laughs) Not a word of truth in that. There are no steak knives coming your way, but I'll tell you, we, we simply do this to challenge you to get some movement happening. Um, to encourage you to obey God, because honestly, that's what this is about obeying God. Test him in this, he says. And if you 've never taken that step toward becoming a regular tither, you need to. Otherwise you 're going to miss out on a huge, huge here 's this word: blessing. the blessing that comes from living generously. A lot of people find it 's really helpful to give online, that 's what Holly and I do. Uh, Many of us intend to be generous. Most of us intend to be givers. Does anybody remember where the road paved with good intentions goes? Not a good place. One pastor said this, automation trumps determination. (laughs) If I woke up every morning in a gym, I'd probably work out more. If I lived in a health food store, I might eat better, but doubtful, doubtful. But anyway, the Bible talks about the first fruit principle. The idea here is that, you know, whenever we receive, we take right off the top of that and we give it to God. We do do that before we do anything else. It's just really easy to forget to make God a priority. It's easy to get distracted. Other activities, other bills, other things I want get in the way of obeying God. So Holly and I make this tithing thing a first fruits priority. We have it set up so as soon as we get paid and get a check, that tithe goes in, meaning that we use technology to translate good intentions into consistent action. It's been good for us. Every month, like clockwork, that's what happens for us. And um, I'm thankful that we can set it up that way. I would just say to you, use whatever method helps you worship, helps you honor God, helps you obey God. Uh, There's a financial pitchman. I used to hear him all the time on the radio. I don't think I've heard him lately. Uh, he, He worked for a finance lending company. And they had a tagline he would always say. You might remember it. At the end, he would say, this is the biggest no-brainer in the history of earth. That was his tagline. I read that he went bankrupt in 2012. (coughs) So that tagline didn't work for him, I guess. But trusting God with your finances, leading a generous life, discovering that it is actually more blessed to give than to receive, Having the discipline, practicing the discipline to be a tither. Getting real about being a giver in your life as opposed to just being a taker. Walking hand in hand through life with God, living generously. That's the blessed life. That's the good life. That is the biggest no-brainer in the history of earth. Really, really. Really. That's becoming more like Jesus, who is in fact the most sacrificial giver who ever lived. Pray with me. Father, <clears throat> this is a difficult subject uh, because God, it goes right to the heart of us and ourselves and taking care of ourselves and trusting you to do that and learning to live on less than 100% is just something that entirely goes against our grain. And yet God, even the research shows that uh, when we come to you and walk with you and act like you and live generously, so many good things come of it. So much growth, so much blessing. I would ask God that you free us up as a people, free us up from the belief that we have to take care of ourselves. Free us up from the notion that if we were to trust you, it would lead to our destruction. Give us in your grace, Lord, the ability to be people who look like and act like Jesus and live with generosity. For we ask this in his name and his sake. Amen.